0: I am Dr. Tasha Browning, a trauma therapist, and this is The Trauma Perspective. In this podcast, we will discuss various topics surrounding mental health, trauma work, trauma healing, and explore the lived experiences of trauma survivors. Be warned trauma is a dirty topic, it is thick with hurt, and it reveals some of the ugliest sides of human existence. These discussions may not be appropriate for all listeners. So take a breath, stay present, and let's discuss the trauma perspective. So welcome back to the trauma perspective. And today our topic is going to be how stigma leads to trauma, the casualties of addiction, and we all know that addiction in this country is at an all time high. The stresses of living through the last sort of you know year and a half, we've been in a pandemic, we've um, lived through social injustice. um we're still dealing with the aftermath of the violence of um, the deaths of having witnessed um, people uh, being murdered, and we also are. Uh, we dealt with an election and with all that uh, in the isolation of a pandemic addiction, um, of course has taken off, but that's not to say that addiction wasn't already an issue within our country. That has been a major struggle for a lot of people. One of the um, biggest things I would say around addiction, um, at least within the therapy community, it's always discussed is stigma and the stigma of having to live with the identity of being an addict or being someone that's in recovery has led and does lead to tons of trauma for people in their lives. Um, this is something that I think needs to be addressed and, and talked about because there's one thing to, um, you know, have cancer and 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 it be classified as an illness. And then in this country, it's, it's a whole nother thing to have the illness of addiction and just be classified as an addict and live through the trauma of both, whereas um, in cancer, living through that trauma, you would probably be more upheld and supported in society, whereas if you are living through uh, and surviving the illness of addiction, you were constantly going to be stigmatized and put down for having that uh, illness, uh, and your life uh, usually suffers additional traumas. So today, um, I have a, a great person to speak about this and the work that he does, because he's pretty much dedicated his entire life to um, issues of addiction and helping people survive and just live. And so, um, Drew, can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you do?
1: Sure. Uh, my name is Drew Bresnitsky. I'm a master's level therapist. Um, I've been in the field of mental health dual diagnosis for about seven years now. Uh, worked in a variety of modalities, residential treatment, intensive outpatient treatment, um, have been the program director for a few startup treatment centers, and I helped kind of develop clinical programming uh, and things of that nature. Um, I have a master's in, uh, with a dual emphasis in clinical mental health counseling and marriage and family therapy, Um, and currently run my own business, uh, Beachside Recovery Interventions and Consulting, which is uh, peer support, outpatient counseling. Um, Those are services that we do provide, but our, our primary services, we kind of do the most is kind of substance use and mental health-related criminal justice reform. Um, So expert witness services, going into jails or, you know, meeting with people out of custody to do substance use and mental health assessments, uh, case conceptualization, um, and expert witness testimony to get these individuals into the appropriate person-centered programming um, in lieu of or rather than incarceration.
0: So Drew, your current company, your business model is definitely very collaborative. You're offering a lot of services that are very much needed in mental health and you're focusing on the aspects of addiction and people really from different angles. Like it really sounds like you're not just focusing on um, working with the addiction or working with the treatment, but you're looking at their entire life and part yes. of that uh, that life that is a part of addiction is sometimes involves a legal element. So can you kind of explain why you decided to make your business as all encompassing as it is?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, that's, <clears throat> that's essentially why I got into this field. Um, I right around the age of 18 lost my mother, grandmother and grandfather all around a very, you know, close time, um, within a close period of time. And, uh, I was a bartender at the time and essentially if you put two plus two together, you get four, um, 18 year old bartender loses whole family. Um, it's quite traumatic, um, did not cope in the most appropriate ways and essentially ended up catching a lot of charges that were pretty significant to where I was looking at some prison time. Um, and, I got an attorney that just, I don't saw something in me just really, you know, advocated for me. And, you know, I walked into his office and he's, you know, after a couple of meetings, he's just like, dude, you're so much more than this. Like you, like, what are you doing? Um, and essentially he will, you know, was the main person responsible for getting me into treatment, um, for me taking care of my mental health, um, rather than, going to prison or going to jail at that time, I, you know, ended up going to a long-term dual diagnosis treatment center, um, you know, and then went back to school and kind of been in the field ever since. So essentially like I, I would not be here if it wasn't for that attorney, I would not be doing what I'm doing. I would not, God knows if I'd be alive, dude. Um, so it's, it's great. Cause that attorney is now actually a colleague of mine. We work a lot of cases together uh, but any time that I'm working a case, you know, I I think of him and I, I just it's kind of surreal. But essentially, that's why I got into this. I just noticed that there was no one that does anything like this. It's just kind of like go to jail or go to prison. You know, there's no one out there saying like, listen, this is going to cause more trauma. This is going to cause more pain and it's going to continue in this vicious cycle um, of maladaptive coping through various substances and we're not going to get anywhere. Um, so, I mean, he was, he was pretty much the main influence in in me doing what I do.
0: Drew, why do you think uh, it was important for you to have that mental health background, that master's in um, mental health counseling and marriage and family? Why do you think that having that background was so important in then approaching? Um, Addiction from uh, that perspective, and including it the legal perspective.
1: Um, well, essentially, you know, and I'll give a little personal background on this in a second. But part of that stigma is like, you know, the word addiction or the word addict, or if someone says recovery, they automatically think in recovery from drugs or in recovery from alcohol. Um, when really, addiction is. Addiction is something people do to cope with trauma, right? Like no one wakes up in the morning and says, hey, I want to bang heroin today. Like we have experiences. Um, Sometimes we're not able to adequately cope with those experiences. And then thereby we resort to maladaptive coping. Um, The, you know, this thing, quote, addiction is, you know, it's family systemic takes hold of the whole family system. It's not just about the person experiencing the addiction or the addictive pathology. You know, it's all encompassing the family system. In addition to that, that's simply a byproduct of some sort of mental health. Um and, and the example that I was going to give is when I went to that treatment center I was talking about earlier, you know, my counselor looked at me and he used the word up al- or alcoholic. Um fortunately i had never really done any drugs in my lifetime and with the ones i did i didn't really keep doing i kind of experimented but you know my primary kind of challenge was alcohol during that time um you know use the word alcoholic and i looked at him i was like i'm not a fucking alcoholic and he's like you have three (laughs) duis and i said yeah like immediately after i lost my whole family you know what i mean like i have I'm depressed, you know, I'm super anxious, you know, at the time I, you know, engaged in a lot of self-harm, um, you know, this is I've trauma. Like this is not fucking, you know what I mean? Like just, so, you know, he surprisingly, uh, never used the word alcoholic again and did not work with me from an addiction quote, traditional 12 step kind of addiction um, place. Um, it was very patient centered care. And he said, you know, he asked me, he's like, what do you want to focus on? I was like, complex bereavement, you know, and depression and anxiety and the trauma of, you know, everything that is correlated with that. Um, that's what he worked for me, the perspective he worked for me, with me from, and that worked for me. So, you know, it really opened my eyes to the importance of focusing on the mental and emotional health component of any addiction.
0: So, you did mention the word stigma and how uh it's so closely connected to substance use and recovery. I just want to kind of backtrack just a little bit so that people that are listening who may not be as familiar with this subject can sort of get an understanding of what you mean by stigma. Can you kind of talk a little bit about that and maybe provide some examples of um, the stigma people with Um, substance use issues or who are in recovery, the type of stigma they deal with?
1: Sure. I mean, I guess the best way I could define Mm -hmm. it would be preconceived notions resulting in unconscious discrimination. Um, I don't know if that's really like, I mean, that's kind of just how I would frame it.
0: What are some of the types of stigma that you've seen some of the people that you work with, some of your clients go through?
1: Uh, just, I mean, ju- just any type of judgment. I mean, I'll give you an example. Just let's take addiction and mental health just out of it for one quick second. I mean, I'm tattooed from head to toe. <laughs> um, and I've been walking down a street before with a mother, with a baby coming toward me who crossed the street just because the way I looked. So most people that have kind of been incarcerated or, you know, struggled with Kind of the addictive pathology piece, you know, have tattoos, may dress a certain way, um, you know, and, and that's just that preconceived notion. I have tattoos, so I'm going to hurt you. Is what goes through that individual's thought process. So when you kind of throw a history of drug addiction, alcoholism, you know, mental health on on top of any of outward kind of appearance, that you know, kind of fans the fire. You know, so a lot of that stigma is directly associated with interpersonal relationships um psychosocial functioning, meaning employment, um getting you know an apartment, opening a bank account um, that stigma affects all areas of a person's life. I don't know if that really answers your question, but
0: well, yes, because what I'm hearing is that there seems to be three different major types of stigma um, that people with addiction issues go through. And one is the social stigma. It is going to be that identity of being an addict, the identity of being an AA, the identity of being in recovery as a social stigma that people um I don't know if it's people have a hard time getting past it or if it's society has a hard time letting them heal and recover and change their identity and be a new person. And then there's the stigma of the legal system, having that attached to who you are, um, meaning that if you um, get caught with drugs in this country, because you know drugs are still considered to be um, criminal activity—it's criminalized instead of uh, being considered an actual um, illness uh, or or something that re- should require medical treatment. Um, so if you get um, you know caught with you know a couple grams of whatever, you're going to go to jail, and so then you have the stigma of um, having done jail time um, yeah. attached to you um, when maybe in actuality. Um, what was really going on is that um, you were harming yourself. You re- weren't committing a crime or harming anybody else, but possession is still considered to be a crime. So you have the, the 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 stigma of having that constantly attached to your name for the rest of your life and trying to find a job, trying to go to school, trying to enter into certain professions, trying to um, just uh, live. You're constantly going to have to revisit that, even if it's something that happened when you were 18, you know, and now you're 55 and you're still having to, um, you know, justify or talk about that, that time you spent those two days in jail. Um, and then actually, also, like, uh-huh.
1: sorry, I, I actually like how you just said that, like as simple as just trying to live. Like that's essentially what it breaks down to individuals that like myself that, you know, face these types of, of stigma Like every day is just trying to live. Um, There's not any day that I don't have to at one point during the day bring up my past or it's not brought up to me. Um, It's, it's that, I just like how you said that just trying to live, you know?
0: Well, it is a lot of trying to live because it's different areas of life that continuing to carry this stigma, even when you've, you know, You know, done your time, did your debt to society, you know, did your treatment, you know, um, paid your fines, paid whatever uh, restitution that you um, needed to pay, and you still, um, you know, may not be qualified to go on your kid's um, field trip, you know, and the two become so intertwined um, that, of course, that then produces more trauma. Because let's say you, you know, like once again, this happened at 18 and now you're, you know, 38 and you, you're you getting ready to go on a field trip with your kids and they want to run a background check and say, well, as a parent, you um, maybe can't go for such and such um, yeah. charge or, or if, that's trauma now, not just for you, but now your child, yeah, which exactly. So, it, you know, it almost erases anything that you've done up to this point to, do what it is said you're supposed to do in society. And that is, if you make a mistake, you can do your time and you can, um, become a better person. Um, there's not any room left in the way this, uh, supposedly justice system is designed to be a person, not even a better person, just a person period. And and you know, addiction and stigma and drugs is only one issue that we know is a, a couple different layer things that are weaved into um, the justice system that really needs reform. Um, and the the other the other thing with um, the stigma of trauma is that's kind of tied into the legal system is recovery. You know, like yes, you can be an addict. Yes, you can also recover. But how much, how long do you have to stay in that role? And when do you get to define that the role is over? And how much does society get to define whether or not you are recovered? Because you and I both know that when you do therapy, you know, um, when there are as a frequency of issues Um, when issues are um, a certain amount of disruption in your life. Um, And so it's a problem. And then it becomes a a diagnosis when your quality of life is affected. But in recovery, those, the frequency and use has gone down. The symptoms have gone down. The behaviors have gone away or gone down. Um, when, when do people get to lose that diagnosis? I mean, even I can be cancer free, but you can never be addiction free, so to speak in this, the way things are currently set up now. And um, that does seem like it is a, it can be a little black and white and there's more gray area to life. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think Just man, everything you said is just so true. I mean, number one, like you said, the word addict in general is just super stigmatizing, and I think you know anyone that knows me knows I'm, you know, I'm an advocate for anything that helps people, anything that resonates Mm -hmm. with people. I don't care what you do or how you get there. You know, as long as you're living emotionally and mentally sound and happy. Life, um, awesome. Whatever helps you get there. Most people that know me know I'm not a huge fan of 12 step.
0: <laughs> yeah. And
1: the reason that I'm not a huge fan of 12 step is because of standing up and saying, Hi, I'm John Doe and I'm an addict. Like, no, you're John Doe and you're a person um first beyond anything and you're not broken you're not less than you don't need to be put back together like Humpty Dumpty you just need to process some stuff and that's evidenced in you know that John Doe guy that's sitting in the back of the AA room you know um still huffing and puffing and exhibiting the same behaviors you know but with 30 30 years clean Mm -hmm. you know that like he's dry sure but he's not healed mm-hmm. you know he's not working toward healing there's still the emotional and and behavioral same issues it may not be alcohol or drugs now maybe he gambles you know what i mean now you know transferring those those addictions in some you know to some other activity um in addition to that like recover the word recovery just you know people just already assume that you know you're doing heroin or or an alcoholic or whatever there's multiple pathways to recovery i mean even for myself like oh you're you know what was your drug of choice i didn't do any drugs you know what i mean like my recovery is mental health focused you know i don't go to the bar when someone dies you know i don't you know if i'm feeling emotionally displaced i don't go to the liquor store, right? Like I take care of my emotional and mental health with through self-care and setting boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and people just look at recovery as this abstinence based um, or 12 step, you know, get a stand up. I'm an addict. Instead of understanding like, you know, there's mental health and there's evidence behind all this mental health recovery. Um, there's 12 step recovery. There's abstinence based recovery. There's medication assisted treatment slash recovery, um, in a variety of ways using a variety of medications. Um, there's moderation based recovery. Um, you know, there is evidence behind moderation based recovery. So, and then taking that into, when you talk about illness, you know, taking that a step further, you know, there, <laughs> I got a compliment from a clinician recently, very nice one, um that was looking at one of my assessments and it was an individual who had kind of some more mental health stuff going on um and was in remission from alcohol for like three years and rather than you know the diagnosis being alcohol use disorder severe whatever like i had alcohol use disorder severe in remission and i think that's not talked about enough like you said like it's a use disorder. It is not you. It does not define you. Just like you use the example of cancer, right? Cancer can be in remission. You know, opiate use can be in remission. Um, And that's outlined very clearly in the DSM. Um, So looking at it more through that lens and that perspective, I think can help kind of change that perception a little bit. Um, but I mean, I've even, I was even told, you know, recently I had to go before a doctor for something that I'm, you know, working toward with my own professional development. And, you know, when I told him I was in mental health based recovery, but have a history of alcohol use from, you know, severe alcohol use where I did meet that criteria 15 years ago, his, his words to me were you're in denial.
0: Why do you think We've been taught to stigmatize people like that and tell them that they're in denial or tell them that substance assistant recovery, such as like Suboxone or Methadone or moderate based recovery, is no good.
1: Honestly, like, so there's a couple answers to that. My first kind of just gut answer is mm-hmm. their own insecurities. In this field, you have a lot of people who have struggled with addiction in the past who can't do it that, you know, they came up in the rooms, which is against medication assisted, or, you know, they see someone else that can do a moderation based recovery or whatnot, and and they weren't able to do it. And that's, and you know what, that's okay that they weren't able to do it. If that person got sober because of 12 step, awesome for them. But I think some of that is rooted in their own kind of distorted, like, self-schema, self, self schema, like, self-esteem. Um, and that's just my kind of matter-of-fact personal opinion. Um, but I think a lot of it, too, just has to do with how addiction was perceived and addressed throughout the years. Again, kind of back in the day with, you know, just 12-step NAA. And then face the,
0: recovery models.
1: Right. And then you know when methadone was a, was introduced in the 80s to start 80s early 90s to start kind of uh combating opiate use disorder that was like you know people were losing their minds um but that's also proves proves to be very effective but then you know this this school of thought says that's just a crutch or they're just changing their drug you know so A lot of it, too, is just simply being closed-minded.
0: I think, um, you know, the abstinence-based model is seen as the the one to be upheld, the one to um, strive towards. But, um, Drew, just in your opinion... Do you think that these other recovery models maybe do a better job of keeping people alive versus an absence-based model? Or do you think that absence-based um, recovery is the one, like the one that we should constantly be moving towards and that's where we should end up?
1: Hell no. <laughs> like, no. There's, there are people that if they were not on methadone or on a medication-assisted recovery track, They would fucking die. Bottom line. Um, You know, and that's just one example. Like, I used to work in a methadone clinic. And, you know, to be frank, like, when I started in that, I needed a job. (laughs) Like, you know, I needed a job. I got a job. Um, I didn't agree with methadone at all at the time. I was closed minded. You know, it's not that I was like completely against it, I just was kind of unsure. Um, And I had come from a treatment center that was abstinence based. And then I saw the population and I saw the people that were actually trying. I mean, I had one, you know, little old man that, you know, had been on methadone since the 80s. He was an old record uh, mogul in like New York or something, sweetest guy. Um, and he used to have a real bad heroin problem, in the, you know, when he was in, kind of in that industry You know, he's like, I think he's in his 80s or something. You can't take him out of the methadone clinic at this point. That has been his recovery for 20 years. Mm -hmm. He's not a candidate to try to titrate down. He wouldn't be able to do it. Now, I've had other people come into the methadone clinic when I work there, you know, that hadn't started shooting yet. You know, they were kind of just eating pills or... You know, the, the, it had not takes such a hold of them that they needed to be on methadone for the rest of their life. They were able to come in, you know, work toward, you know, in a harm reduction sense, work towards trading down and then go into an abstinence-based recovery. Um, so, I mean, that's the, essentially like it's all about a harm reduction. Like, I, again, I don't give a fuck like, I just want you to live. You know yeah. what I mean? I don't care. I don't care how it's, you get there. You
0: yeah, know? <laughs> no, definitely. Because when we can keep people alive, we can continue to help them, you know, right. we can continue to get better, you know, we can't do anything when, you know, our, our patients, our clients pass away. So the goal is, you know, that you want people to stay alive, you know, that that's the whole reason for part of what, what you do. I don't think that um, just in my experience and I don't see anyone who becomes a therapist and their goal is to strip people so naked of all their coping mechanisms and all of their ways in which they've been able to survive and stay alive, strip them from that. So then they're left with nothing. And then yes, they die. Yeah. Uh, that's, and then that's, even yeah. ut-
1: Utilizing um, something that was kind of surprised me a few years back is like, Utilizing THC as a method of harm reduction for opiate use disorder. Like, okay, they're smoking weed, but they're not banging heroin all day, every day, subject to endocarditis or whatever, you know, health issues can come up and or up into including death. You know what I mean? Like there's some people that that's appropriate for, you know? And again, there's evidence behind that as well. There's it's You know, I am grateful that the field is, they're definitely not there yet. But starting to turn the head a little bit toward that harm reduction, and that it's it's just all about patient-centered care.
0: Especially what is best when, for this patient? Yeah, especially we when we have the ability to uh, regulate and for these new treatments to be under the supervision of a doctor. Like when we have the ability to have more say in the regulation and the manufacturing and the farming and the processes of things, you know, they may be more effective. And in in essence, people can be more safe. But if we just continue to say no to every single thing, I mean, we don't know how many people we could be helping or saving or just understanding new things about addiction. You know, what, what about just needing to do more research in the field, period.
1: Yeah. No,
0: absolutely, for sure. So um, the next situation here that I really want to get into is your experiences in working with individuals in the legal system and the traumas that they face going into it as someone who has an addiction. And maybe, you know, was caught with drugs or maybe was selling or maybe just got really lost into an addiction and ended up um, in jail or ended up, um, uh, you know, not like their parents looking for them. Like, let's talk about um, some of those situations, experiences that you've dealt with, because I know this is a particular area that you um, have an expertise in.
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, so the first important piece of that is like determining if someone's actually a candidate. Mm I mean, what I mean by that is like, you know, their intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and where that lies. Um, I've, I would think, feel safe to say a fair amount of credibility with the court systems throughout Central Florida. Um, due to the fact that they know that I'm not just trying to get people out of trouble, right? Like I'm there to genuinely to help them and to determine if they're truly a candidate for treatment or if they're just kind of trying to get out of doing some time. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it, it happens. Like I had a, <laughs> I had a case, one of my first cases, it was a Rico charge. And, you know, I went in and I actually knew the PI that was working on the case and he had you know, had to kind of look through the guy's house and you know search the house and everything. And he told me some, you know, filled me in on some of his observations, uh, which were that he had like a closet, a big old house, like closet full of Nike Air Force War, you know, or air drones or whatever, polos in every color, like huge rows. So kind of knew that going into it. And then I go into the jail and I ask him, I say, hey man, what's your drug of choice? Crickets for like 30 seconds. <laughs> I don't know anyone that has ever struggled with any sort of substance that doesn't know what the substance that they struggle with is right away. So I was like, look, man, I was like, I'm sorry, dude, but I don't, I don't think I can help you. You know I and mean? He's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, you're like, you know, 350 pounds. And if you were, cause he did say heroin, he finally said heroin. It's was like, if you were addicted to heroin, you would be like 50 pounds. Number one, it would like I would see physically that that addiction is there. Number two, your closet wouldn't be lined with Air Force ones and polos. The dope man would have them. So essentially, in that case, he was just slinging dope. Like had a nice, you know what I mean. Like he did not have a drug issue. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's honestly a rarity. Um, the majority of of people that I work with definitely have, have drug or mental health related, um, challenges. Um, and they are genuinely motivated for change. Um, but determining that sometimes, you know, um, but once you determine it, it's really gratifying to fight for that patient. Um, because essentially outside of their attorney, no one else is, you know?
0: So let's say you, you know, go meet someone in jail and you do your assessment and you determine that, yeah, this is someone with a real um, addiction problem and, and they do need some help. And um, so now I'm going to help them. Um, what, I know you can't give exacts because every case is different, but what is usually sort of your next step at moving them away from incarceration, uh, incarceration and into treatment?
1: So what that kind of process looks like is I do an initial kind of like pre-assessment that's kind of where I'm determining if the person's even like serious and if they want help, which again, nine times out of time, 10 they do. Um, And then I go into the jail or if they're out of custody, they come into my office and I do a general substance use assessment, a general mental health assessment. Um, if there's high acuity mental health or anything kind of, you know, that I think is needs, you know, further evaluation, then I'll bring in my clinical psychologist and do further psychological testing, like MMPIs and, and things of that nature. Um, and then once I have all that data, um, I, I essentially go and look at their goals. I also look at their family's finances because some people go to private treatment, mm-hmm. some need state funding. So part of my so I have three main goals with my patients. A, get them the most appropriate, ethical, patient-centered, clinical treatment possible. B, mitigate their legal situation as much as possible. Three, mitigate the cost to the family as much as possible. Um, so essentially, once I do those evaluations, I then do case conceptualization, which is probably one of the favorite, my favorite parts of my job because I really get to look at the whole person and not even just the whole person. Like I'll do, I'll do family clinical interviews with family. Um, You know, I work with a family system and, you know, piecing together, like what is the treatment that is going to provide this individual the potential to meet maximum therapeutic gains? Um, What resonates with them? Are they, you know, primary mental health? Are they primary substance use? You know, dual diagnosis? Are they, Are they military? Are they vet? Are they faith-based? Are they 12-step oriented? Are they musical? I work with music therapy programs. What is going to draw them in and help them to invest in themselves? Um, So essentially when I do that, I then do all the work on the back end, um, doing applications for whatever facility, coordinating care, getting my assessments to them. um, And then I get... I write a clinical recommendation to the court as an expert witness. Um, whatever facility it is, I will get a letter of acceptance from them. So when we go into court, we go in fully prepared um, with you know valid diagnosis, valid understanding of what is going on with the patient, why treatment would be more ben- beneficial to them over incarceration. Um, and the plan we have that's ready to be executed, um, and then testify if need be. So that's kind of what that process looks like.
0: Do you find that this process is working for people?
1: Um, you know, it's, I had, (laughs) I just got a new case today and she asked me, Hey, what are your success rates? (laughs) And I said, well, that's a little hard to measure because I'm not in that, in the legal sense, right? With my legal cases, I am not the treating clinician. Um, They're going to another facility. But what I did tell her, I said, what I can tell you is, and I've been very blessed to be able to say this, I, I don't have statistics, but I can say that my patients, the majority of my patients stay clean um complete probation and do not reoffend. i'm fortunate like i've been doing this now i've been doing it full-time since september but i've had my business and doing the legal kind of stuff for about three about three years now so i've actually had the blessing and opportunity to see some of my guys go through the treatment get off probation and still doing well um And I really attribute that, what I attribute that to is actually not that much, to be honest with you. Like I stay with my patients and their families from start to finish. So a lot of people, when they go to treatment and you move through the levels of care, you're going into treatment, you're getting a counselor for 30 days, you're spilling your guts, you're trying to do this hard work. And then you go to PHP and you get a new counselor and you're spilling your guts and you're trying to do this hard work. Then you go to IOP and you get a new counselor and you're spilling your guts and you're trying to do this work, you know, and at some point, sometimes people just go, you know what? Fuck it. I don't want to tell my story again. You know, I'm exhausted. Like, or I don't trust this person, this new person. I built a rapport with this person. So the benefit kind of is I am with them and their family from the time I do their assessment in jail to the day they complete treatment. I help coordinate care with their probation officers I answer questions from their family. Like, for example, I'm going to a treatment center up in Ocala next week to to check in on, I think I have like six guys up there right now. I just sit with them. How's it going? I talk to their therapist. Are they getting the care that they require? Um, Why have you not put them in a GED class yet? Like kind of just accountability on the piece of the individual as well as the clinician in the treatment center. Um, And I think that's kind of what has driven the success of my patients is just simply having one constant person there that fucking gives a shit and cares.
0: (laughs) Do you think that the constant in someone's life is what's keeping them... um, on this path because you know that with any um addiction or really any issue anybody's facing they're still going to be um enticed and they're going to be encountered um and they're going to encounter different situations where they're going to be exposed to opportunities again or they're going to be re-traumatized, you know, or they're going to, you know, um, get off of their probation or um, you know, they're trying to get a job. Um, Do you think that that constant has assisted with them overcoming or at least being strong enough to push through some of the stigma that they're going through?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like I said, it's, I don't, I'm not like enabling them. You know what I mean? I'm not like, you know, so far on top of them that, you know, it's simply just checking in. Like I do little things That show them and their family that, hey, I'm here for you and I care about you. If you think, you know, no one else does, I do. And I genuinely think, you know, whether it's me, one of my peer support people and the other therapists, you know, that that plays a huge role in minimizing that stigma (laughs) because you kind of have one person that sees you as a person and not a DOC number or, you know, not a drug or not be whatever. Um, Does it do enough? No. (laughs) Like, you're right. They're going to be re-traumatized. I mean, even being, you know, some of our state treatment centers at the point where you go get a job. That's like one of the most traumatizing parts of being in those types of treatment centers is you're going out every day. You most likely don't have a license. You know, you're having to walk around town, like trying to get a job sweating you finally go in fill an application and they're like eh, why are you sweating they're like you know you're waiting outside to get picked back up by the treatment center you know or you disclose that you're in a treatment center and it's you know well, oh, on to the next one you know
0: do you think that those are some of the challenges that are con- like that can continue to make people lose hope or go back to um old coping skills instead of using some of their newer coping skills or newer things that they've learned in treatment?
1: No, absolutely. I mean, that's all I ever hear from people that do relapse. Some people that are dead. Like I just couldn't bounce back. Like I couldn't, I'm tired of fighting. Like I'm tired of having to explain myself. I'm tired of having to live in this scenario, when I could live in that scenario, like, oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I could say, I sometimes I don't even know how the fuck I've done it, too. Honestly, well, no, I do. The people in my life. I've got, like, amazing people in my life from, you know, professors to, you know, bosses to friends, you know, people in my church that have always encouraged me. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do for my patients. Like if I didn't have that, honestly, like it wouldn't have anything to do with alcohol or drugs. I wouldn't be around it, Like if I didn't have those people in my life,
0: do you think that's the most difficult part of, of, um, recovering and overcoming, um, this legal stigma and the social stigma? And do you, do you think that's, the most crucial element that is missing from people's lives that will, that can ultimately really save them?
1: What do you mean? Kind of, can you elaborate on that a little bit, that question?
0: Do you think that it is the network of support and the element of having positive people in your life or people in your life that care about you, um, that is really helping people, um, you know, be successful in recovery, but also successful in just overcoming the stigma of being an addict.
1: Yeah. No, thank you for kind of um, repeating that. So yeah, I mean, community is a huge piece. And again, thankfully some places in the field are starting to go that direction and incorporate a lot more community into their programming But yeah, people need people like period. We're humans. We're innately, you know, made to (laughs) interact and to socialize and to give love and receive love. Um, And, you know, majority of times that's missing in someone who is struggling with mental health or addiction. Um, It's missing in their lives, you know. Addiction grows in isolation, right? Um, so when we're depressed or have like some kind of social anxiety or we're using alcohol or heroin or whatever it is, you know, we tend to isolate. And in that isolation is where we kind of decompensate and we revisit that trauma and we dwell on that trauma and you know we, that trauma continues to impact us in a greater way um when we're around other people that care about us and we have community uh we are able to find the kind of self-efficacy you know in the in the motivation no matter how small to continue on our path to healing
0: uh totally and so with that i think the other question i have is you know what else do you think is needed um in the mental health field maybe the legal field or the field of recovery what is needed to help move this issue forward and to combat stigma and, that surrounds addiction
1: first thing would just be open mindedness you know um and just being open to different modalities different ways to treat mental health and substance use um being, you know, just more compassion, honestly, um, more empathy. We're we're very, very. I mean, the stigma and that continues to re-traumatize the population we're discussing is is I think what continues to perpetuate it. So, removing that stigma through again being more open-minded empathy, compassion, education. Um, I think that's really the key.
0: When you say open-minded and people, what specifically are you trying to express that you want from people?
1: Looking at people as humans, not, like you said, like the addict. That word just makes me... Cringe, you know, and just—I always get this vision of Humpty Dumpty. Like Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall with a beer and needle, fell off the wall, cracked. Now he's broken. Who's going to put Humpty Dumpty back together? Like, you know, again, we're—we're—you're not broken when we're depressed. We're not broken when we're traumatized. You know, we're human, and you know, we need community. We need compassion. We need empathy. Um, to work toward healing, to help motivate us to work toward healing. So I guess being being open, um, is just being open to someone's struggles, their journey, the path they've been on, the things they've been through. Um, and and under understanding more of a holistic picture of that person's story, right? Instead of just, oh, you know, Johnny just got out of treatment. Oh, Johnny just got out of treatment. Right. Well, you don't know fucking know anything about Johnny. You know what I mean? Like, you don't know the trauma he's experienced. You don't know the loss or the grief or the depression. Like you just hear he gets out of treatment and he's a fucking, you know, junkie. Like, so really just kind of being more open to the individual story, you know, because we all have a story. You know, we just meet people at different chapters. And I think part of it is looking at those other chapters that we kind of missed.
0: I think your um, Humpty Dumpty example is great because, you know, if he is sitting on a wall and he does have a beer in his hand and he falls off the wall and he's broken, you're not going to put him back together by making him put down that beer. I mean, right. it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um <laughs> He is obviously in a state of trauma and disrepair to the point where whether he picks up a beer or point at this point or not, it's not going to fix him uh, or help him. So, yes, um, that is definitely um, definitely a perspective to look at. Do you um, have any uh, closing words or anything? Um, else that you would like people to know um, about this topic drew that maybe we didn't cover today
1: i mean just essentially that not everyone that struggles with addiction mental health or substance use and mental health related kind of legal challenges are broken or bad people (laughs) we're human you know and just that love and compassion and just showing people that we care um I think that's pretty much like my primary focus or thing that I want to drive home to to kind of help removing some of that stigma. It's not always what it appears, you know? It's not always what it seems.
0: Well, thank you, Drew, for um, this discussion today. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. As always, if you have any questions or if you um, have any additional comments, uh, or maybe you'd like for us to follow up on something in more detail, please just send a um, message um, to thehealingbodymethod.com or of course drop a note in the comments at the bottom of what uh, your chosen uh, podcast channel outlet is. Um, I wish you well and I wish you uh, peace and balance in your life and enjoy the rest of your day.